0: Faith Talk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park. Online at Let's com. a service of the Salem Me- Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. <laughs>
1: Genuine repentance always produces a change in behavior. In other words, if someone is really repentant, there will always be this bearing of godly fruit, this producing of righteous behavior in their lives. Righteous behavior always follows genuine repentance.
0: My Bible study application finds the word repent or repentance 49 times in the New American Standard New Testament. must be pretty important, right? Thanks for tuning in. Today on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve Kreloff will continue our series of lessons from Psalm 51 about genuine repentance. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. When I was a young Christian, there was a popular question going around. It was, If you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? It's much the same with repentance, since it is so closely associated with salvation. If we say we have repented of something, where's the evidence? Let's continue our lessons about repentance. Here's Pastor Steve.
1: One of the key missing notes in gospel preaching today, as well as in personal evangelism, is the note of repentance— It's not very often that we even hear the term repentance used in calling sinners to salvation. Several years ago, John MacArthur wrote a book called The Gospel According to Jesus. It turned out to be quite controversial. The reason it was so controversial is because John challenged the current thinking of many evangelicals about what was the actual message that that Jesus even preached, especially his call of sinners to come to him for salvation. It was a call of repentance, and John said that. He dared, in this book, to mention the names of some very well-known contemporary theologians and Bible teachers who either dismiss the doctrine of repentance or else they redefine it. MacArthur argued in this book that in calling people to himself, Jesus called them to repent, meaning that he called them to turn away from their sin, to forsake their sin, and to follow him as their Lord. That's the essence of the book. See, from the very start of our Lord's public ministries, actually the very first words that he proclaimed publicly, Jesus preached repentance. It continued to be the heart of his Call to salvation. In Matthew 4 17, we read that after he came out of the temptation, the wilderness experience and the temptation, this is what he said. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was actually the first words of John the Baptist. That was his message, too, publicly. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning it's here. To the self righteous, Pharisees and scribes who complained that Jesus ate and he he drank with sinners. And they asked him, why do you do this? Here's his response in Luke chapter 5. He said, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? To repentance. In commissioning his apostles to preach the gospel all over the world, Jesus defined the message that they were to preach as a message of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. Here's what he said in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 46. We read, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. Go preach a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's exactly what they did. In the book of Acts, it's called the book of Acts, but it's really the book that focuses on the acts of two apostles. Most people call the acts of the apostles. really two apostles that Luke, the author of, this book focuses on, that would be Peter and Paul, both of these apostles preached repentance. Peter preached repentance to a large Jewish crowd soon after the church was born, not the first sermon on the day of Pentecost, but what we would call the second sermon in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, he said to them, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That was Peter's message. Repent and return. Paul said the same thing. Paul is standing in front of some Athenian philosophers who want to know what he believes. He says in Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all people everywhere that they should repent. That was Paul's message. So repentance is clearly a doctrine that characterized both the preaching ministry of Jesus as well as the apostles. question is, what exactly is repentance? What are we talking about? What does it mean to repent? What effect does repentance have on us when we come to Christ for salvation? Well, I've said on a number of occasions, the essential definition of repentance means a change of mind that involves a forsaking of sin. That's the essential definition. But this definition, while accurate, it doesn't do justice to what repentance really Entails. There, there's more to it than that because repentance is something, folks, that affects your entire life. It affects your whole character. It can't be compartmentalized. Listen to these very powerful words of Dr. D. Martin Lloyd Jones as he describes what it means for an individual to repent. He writes Repentance means that you realize that you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God, that you deserve the wrath and the punishments of God, that you're hell-bound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you, that you long to get rid of it, that you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world, whatever the cost, the world and its mind and outlook, as well as its practice, and you deny yourself, and you take up the cross, and you go after Christ, your nearest and dearest, and the whole world may call you a fool or say that you have religious mania. You may have to suffer financially, but it makes no difference. That is repentance. Now, what Lloyd-Jones is describing is what initially happens to an individual when he or she comes to faith in Christ. That is to say, when they're first converted, they turn their backs on their sin. What they're aware of is sin in their life. They renounce the world They take up the cross, and they go after Christ, and they follow him. However, while repentance begins at conversion, it doesn't stop there. Once you become a Christian, you enter a lifelong experience of repenting every time you sin. It's called conviction of sin. Every time you sin. In fact, repentance is one of the proofs, evidences, that you are a true Christian. Not someone who has deceived himself into thinking that he's a believer, as many have, when in fact he isn't. The Apostle John very clearly spells out in his first letter that real Christians do repent. His letter is built around what are the evidences of being a Christian. At the end of his letter, in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, these things I've written that you may know that you're a Christian. So everything in the book revolves around that. How do you know that you're a Christian? He says repentance is one of the evidences He writes in 1 John 3, 8 and 9, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who's born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he's born of God. Now, the key word in these verses is practice, not commit sin, but practices it. And John isn't saying that believers never sin, but that true believers don't continue to practice sin as a lifestyle, as an acceptable lifestyle. That is to say, sin is not the unbroken, constant, habitual lifestyle of a believer. And John's point is that a true believer can possibly continue in a lifestyle of ongoing sin. Why? Because he says his seed is in him, meaning he's been regenerated. Christ lives in him. The Spirit of God lives in this person and therefore it's not possible that his whole life, his entire life and every area of his life is characterized by unbroken sin. That's John's point. Now listen closely. Those who are believers are often, we're very discouraged by how much sin we see in our lives. Sinful thoughts, sinful attitudes, sinful things that we say sinful desires, sinful actions, but even though there is so much sin that we see in our lives, true believers do not continue in uninterrupted, continual, non-stop sin. Why? Because we repent of our sin, and every time we repent, we are breaking up and interrupting ongoing sin. It's the mark of a believer. Listen once again to what the Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 8, and 9, verses that we're very familiar with. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, John says that unbelievers, and in particular he's talking about those unbelievers who think that they are Christians, but they're not. They deceive themselves when they think they don't have any sin to confess. There's nothing wrong with them. No sin to repent of. But John says that's not true of real Christians because real Christians confess their sins. It it means that we agree with God, what he says about our behavior. We admit our sin. We confess it. We repent of it. And then we experience God's cleansing and his forgiveness. And John says that's one of the evidences that we have been truly converted. In other words, confession and repentance of our sin helps us to gain assurance of our salvation because unbelievers just don't repent. They don't repent at all. So repentance is something that characterizes all Christians. It's something that God brings about in our lives as he convicts us of our sin. But what repentance actually looks like in the life of a believer, what forms it might take, what it entails, what it involves that's revealed primarily to us by one man in one psalm. The psalm we've been studying, Psalm 51. I invite you to turn there. As you already know, in this psalm, David is describing his his own personal repentance before God. Over what? Over his sin of committing adultery with a woman named Bathsheba and then the subsequent murdering of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And David's purpose in writing about his repentance is to teach us what genuine repentance looks like. It's distinguishing marks, it's features, it's characteristics. And so far in our study, we've discovered two of these marks. Number one, true repentance is marked by an honest admission of our guilt. David begins this psalm by asking God to be gracious to him, to be compassionate to him. How? By forgiving his sin. He says in verses 1 and 2, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Then he says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. He just wants God to blot out his sin, wash him thoroughly, cleanse him from it. See, here's a man who's convicted of his sin. He knows that he's guilty before God. And because he's guilty, he pulls no punches with complete candor. David faces his sin. He calls his behavior exactly what it is. It's rebellion against God. It's a perversion of the divine standard. It's a defiance against God Almighty's authority. And he recognizes that his problem with sin goes way beyond his actions with Bathsheba and then her husband. He acknowledges that he is what theologians would call today totally depraved. He admits that he's been a sinner by nature, from the very moment that he was conceived in his mother's womb, it has affected every area of his life. Sin permeates his life. Therefore, knowing how sinful he is, David closes this first section in verse 9 by asking God to hide his face from his sins and to blot out his iniquities. That's what the first section is about. This is honest admission of his guilt. And the reason he has this acute sense of his guilt is because that's the mark of genuine repentance. When one repents, there is no soft peddling of their actions. They just honestly admit their sin with no holds barred. Now, if your confession of sin doesn't look like this, it may not be the exact wording, of course, but if it doesn't take this form, this shape of an honest admission of guilt, then it's not true repentance. If it's filled with excuses and justifications and everybody else is wrong, but you're not, blame shifting, it's just not true repentance. It may be remorse, it may be deep regret for your behavior, but if you're truly repentant, then you will face your sin with honesty before God, and you will cry out like David cried out, guilty as charged, be merciful to me, O God, forgive me. Having told us, though, about his guilt and his need for forgiveness, David moves on to give us a second mark of repentance found in his own personal experience, not only is repentance, True repentance marked by an honest admission of guilt. But he tells us that true repentance is marked by a desire to forsake our sin and to walk in holiness. Verses 10 through 12 say this, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Now, last session, we looked rather closely at these verses, and what we discovered is that having asked God to forgive him of his past sin, David is now asking God to help him that in the future he doesn't fall back into his old sinful ways. So he asked God to bring renewal to his heart, to revive his heart, so that his thoughts, his actions would now be clean before the Lord. He wants a steadfast spirit, meaning a steadfast attitude that will help him to lead a life of consistent obedience to the Lord. And to do this, he knows that he he needs the Holy Spirit to empower him. He knows that. And so he asked God to not remove the Spirit from him or cast him off as the king of Israel. The Spirit of God had come upon him to empower him to be the king. He's pleading with God not to remove, it. he wants to continue as king, and therefore he needs the spirit to help him to lead a godly life and to be an example to his people. For the last year, David has not been an example. He's not been living a model life, an exemplary life before the Jewish people. Why? Because he had covered up his sin. Therefore, he's been miserable, horrible. That's why he asked the Lord to restore to him the joy of his salvation. And he's asking that in light of the fact that now he's repenting. He's been miserable. I'm repenting. Please, Lord, return that joy to me. And the proof of his repentance is that he's asking God to sustain him with a willing spirit. In other words, he wants the Lord to uphold him, to support him, so that he'll maintain a willing heart of submissive obedience towards him. Now, is this what your heart is saying when you confess your sin? When you are asking the Lord to forgive you for what you have done, do you have a desire, a heartfelt desire to make a break with your sin and walk in obedience to the Lord? That's why it's not valid when someone thinks that they're confessing their sin to God and say, if I've sinned, forgive me. Not if you've sinned. Where have you sinned? Be specific. And then do you have a desire to make a break with that sin? If not, then it's just not true repentance. You may be very sorry for what you've done, but if you have no intention of abandoning your sin, then you are only fooling yourself. It is not true repentance because true repentance desires to forsake sin and to walk in holiness. There's still, though, one more mark of repentance that David reveals as he models for us from his own experience what genuine repentance looks like. This is what we want to focus on. Genuine repentance, he tells us, number one, it's marked by an honest admission of guilt. Number two, it's marked by a desire to forsake sin and walk in holiness. And finally, tells us that genuine repentance is marked by a change of behavior. Now, before we take a close look at the next few verses, the remaining verses of Psalm 51, I want you to see that in these verses, there is a pattern that emerges as David is praying to God in his cry of repentance. Notice what he tells us in verses 13 through 15. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. Now notice, in each of these verses, David tells the Lord what he's going to do, what actions he's going to take, once God restores the joy of salvation to him. That's the pattern. That is to say, in each of these verses, David speaks of some new behavior that will take place as a result of his repentance. He says that he will teach transgressors God's ways. Then I'll do it. That his tongue will sing of God's righteousness that his mouth will declare God's praise. These are things that he is promising the Lord he will do as a result of his repentance. Now, as I said, I don't want to examine these statements just yet, but I do want you to see the principle that David is revealing, which is this, that genuine repentance always produces a change in behavior. In other words, if someone is really repentant, there will always be this bearing of godly fruit, this producing of righteous behavior in their lives. Righteous behavior always follows genuine repentance. See, in the previous verses, David is telling the Lord that he needs the power of the Holy Spirit in him and upon him to lead a a godly life. But in these verses... Now, he's telling the Lord that by the Spirit's enabling power, this is what he intends to do. Specifically, instruct sinners in the ways of God. Sing of God's righteousness. Praise him. He needs the Holy Spirit to help him to do these things. Now, I want us to think about this for a few minutes, because as someone who's been a pastor for many years, I've heard people say on numerous occasions that they have repented over their sin. But then, so often I just don't see changes in their lives. No changes that take place. It's the same old, same old. They may cry. They may be very emotional. But it's the same old, same old. And if there's no fruit of repentance, then according to Scripture, it wasn't true repentance at all. Now, they may have changed their mind about what they've done wrong, But as I've said many times, true repentance is more than a change of mind. It's more than a new opinion about your behavior. It's more than a new outlook on your conduct. Oh, now I see this was wrong. It's more than that. It involves a complete turnabout so that your behavior begins to change so that you produce godly fruit in both attitudes as well as outward Actions. Now, I want you to know that this is not my opinion about repentance. The Bible very clearly teaches, and may I say, not only teaches, it demands. The fruit of repentance is proof that it's genuine. And one of the primary places in Scripture we see this teaching is in the ministry of none other than John the Baptist. Now, as you recall, John the Baptist really should be known as John the Baptizer. It wasn't like his last name was Baptist. John was the baptizer who was the forerunner of Jesus. It was his ministry to proclaim to Israel, the Jewish people, that Messiah was coming. And in anticipation of the Messiah, of the Christ, John preached a message of repentance to Israel. So the people would forsake their sin and have prepared hearts ready to receive the Lord. That's why John said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. The Messiah is about to be introduced to you. Jesus said the same thing. Those who did repent, what did John do? Well, he baptized them in the Jordan River, symbolizing their cleansing from sin.
0: Wayne Grudem, in his systematic theology said that faith and repentance are not confined to the beginning of the Christian life. They are rather attitudes of heart that continue throughout our lives as Christians. Jesus told the church in Laodicea, those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. For more information about Lakeside, call 727-441-1714 or go online to lakesidechapel.com. We are very near the conclusion of this series of lessons about genuine repentance. If you missed any of our broadcasts and would like to catch up, they are available for streaming or downloading at our website, firstbyverseradio.org. Click the message archive link. That's versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. When I learn something valuable, I like to share the knowledge, don't you? When King David experienced the return of his joy once he confessed and repented his sin, he felt the same way. He wanted to tell us. A-